we're in a series called King's Code, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, you know, Jesus was always talking about this kingdom. But just like we today have wrong perceptions about God, back then they did as well. And they had really wrong ideas about what the kingdom of God was going to be. And so Jesus comes and he reorients all their thinking. And he, he drops this bomb on them that is like so revolutionary, so mind-blowing, that it flips all their illusions and all their ideas upside down, or better, right side up. And uh, so we've, that's what we've been studying. And I've found that sometimes that the, uh, the, the things we're most familiar with can be the things that we become numb to. And when we become numb to them, we don't practice them. And so that's why we're taking time to de- dive into the King's Code. It's Jesus' manifesto for his followers. And today we've arrived at possibly the most famous phrase from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that's the phrase, judge not, lest ye be judged. And people quote it a lot. They'll even quote it in the King James like that. Like, when was the, the last time you said lest? Well, only if you're quoting this, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. People love to quote it. And so I'm telling my message today, kangaroo court. Kangaroo court. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, we'll actually put the full-on dictionary definition on the screen for you. But a kangaroo court is an unauthorized, an unofficial court held by a group of people in order to try someone regarded especially without good evidence as guilty of a crime. We'll leave that up there for a moment. The idea of judge not as you be judged is exactly that. You know, it's called a kangaroo court. Why? Because you're jumping to conclusions. You're leaping over the evidence. You're hopping to a guilty verdict. Or you could even say that it's called a kangaroo court because the judge is in somebody's pocket. And marsupials, you know. They have pockets on their bellies. All right. So uh, anyhow, kangaroo court. But this is what it means when you judge not unless you be judged. It's exactly that. He's saying you're unauthorized. You're unofficial. You're looking at everybody else and thinking about all their guilt, but that's not your job. You're, you're, you're a kangaroo court. You're unofficial. And we know how this feels when it happens to us, right? We know precisely how this feels. Like, why are you always judging me? You don't even know me. Why are you always judging me? Like, it feels yucky, right? You don't even know what's going on in my life. You're like assigning motives. You're making all these assumptions about me. You don't even know me, man. How can you be judging me? And it feels very gross. And there are plenty of religious people who have what I like to call Angela syndrome. Angela syndrome. Oh, yeah, you Christians. Oh, yeah, you don't watch TV, do you? I watch TV, okay? I don't know. I've seen The Office. And there are a lot of Christians who have Angela syndrome. Angela on The Office, right? She's judging everybody else, scoffing at everybody else, scowling at everybody else. Meanwhile, her and Dwight are doing bad things out back. Ooh. And what Jesus communicates in this passage, as you know, we've called it kangaroo court, will be in Matthew chapter 7, we can, uh, what he's communicating is this. Nobody likes to go to the dentist and find out that their dentist has teeth like a pirate. Nobody likes the hunchback of Notre Dame to be their chiropractor. Like, dude, you cannot, you, you're giving me spine advice? This don't work? Nobody wants Igor from young Frankenstein to be their optometrist. Hey, uh, crazy eyes. 
That's just, it's not good. And nobody wants a self-righteous hypocrite to tell them how to live their life. Nobody wants a pirate for a dentist. Nobody wants a hunchback for a chiropractor. Nobody wants crazy eyes as their optometrist. And nobody wants a self-righteous hypocrite telling them how to live their life. And I honestly believe that just like there are many religious people in Jesus' day who were living this way, there's many religious people living this way today. And because of that, I think that a lot of people feel like the criminal who decides to stitch up his own wound in a sketchy motel or in a veterinarian office because he knows that if he goes in the hospital, he's going to get arrested. And I think a lot of people in this town, they would never darken the doorway of a church. They need help. They know they need help, but they never come to church. Why? Because they feel like the moment they get to church, it's, it's going to be like the popo. It's going to be the police. Somebody's going to bust them. You know, Jesus said that he saw sinners as sick people who need a doctor. And it's our vision as a church that we'd be a safe place where broken, guilty, hurting people can come and find the help they need. Can I get an amen? Man, like that's what this passage is about. This could be a place where people could come and find healing. Now, people do take judge not lest you be judged and kind of blow it out of proportion to a certain degree, though. Because if you study Jesus and you study what he teaches, you discover that the good news of the gospel, the message of the Bible, is not moralism. Okay, most people think that the message of the Bible is moralism. Be good, don't be bad. But the message of the Bible is not moralism. The gospel is not moralism. It's, it, that's not the good news. That's not good news. That's good advice. But the message of the Bible is also not relativism. And relativism is saying there's no morality at all. And a lot of people take judge not lest you be judged to mean this, that you shouldn't make any moral, moral evaluations whatsoever. It'd be, it'd be our culture. You hear college professors say it. Anytime you tell anybody any advice about their life, you tell them, hey, judge not lest you be judged. Don't make any moral evaluations. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me anything. But to say you should not make moral evaluations is to make a moral evaluation. To tell people it's wrong to tell people how to live is to tell people how to live. If you come up to me and say, you shouldn't tell anyone what to believe, I'll go, should I believe you? <laughs> to, make, to, to say you should not make moral evaluations is to make a moral evaluation. To tell people it's wrong, to tell people that what they're doing is wrong, is self-defeating. You have to do it to denounce it. Everybody makes moral evaluations, including the relativists. Everybody makes moral evaluations. If I come up to you and I tell you, hey, don't do that, regardless of what you say after it, you are making a moral evaluation. So what Jesus is teaching is not meant to demolish morality, it's not meant to abolish morality. It's meant to demolish superiority. I'll say that again. Jesus is not abolishing all morality. Jesus is demolishing our superiority. He's saying the issue is when you have that holier than thou, 
harsh, heavy-handed attitude that says, I've got the moral high ground, and you're nothing. You're low to the ground. I'm condemning you. That's a kangaroo court. You don't have that ability. You don't have that position. Jesus isn't abolishing all morality. Jesus is demolishing our superiority. And what's funny about that verse, holier than thou, holier than thou, people like to use it like, oh, he's all holier than thou. That's actually a quote from the book of Isaiah where God says that the ones who say, don't come near to me, I'm holier than thou, are like smoke in God's nostrils. So if uptight, holier than thou religious people annoy you, you need to know that they annoy Jesus even more. If you, if you hate self-righteous, uppity religious people, you're going to love Jesus. You're going to love Jesus because he hates that too. So what foundation, so if he's not abolishing all morality, what foundation can we build our morality on that won't lead us to superiority complexes, nor will it lead us to inferiority complexes? What can we build our morality on that's not going to lead to superiority complexes or inferiority complexes? What can we build our morality on? Well, I think we'll find that out in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pick up at the end of, uh, uh, right after the Lord's Prayer. He says this, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I'm actually combining these two texts, because like I've told you before, Jesus probably preached the sermon more than once, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus combines these two texts. You could go check that out for yourself. But anyways, it continues on. Do not judge, this is chapter 7, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plague in your own eye? This would have made people laugh, okay? Everybody laugh. Ha, 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 Jesus, you're funny. All right. You hypocrite, will you take the plague out of your own eye? Then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what's sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do... They may trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. Father, I pray that you would speak clearly today, Lord. I pray that you would communicate to people. I can't change people's hearts, Lord. I need a change of heart. But, Lord, I believe that you can, that you can change all of us. I pray that we wouldn't walk around being, uh, being debt collectors, debt inspectors. But, Lord, we'd see that we're debtors. And because of that, we'd be forgivers. Make us like that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first thought I think that comes out loud and clear, especially out of chapter 7, is this. Your wrong heart won't help their wrong behavior. Your wrong heart won't help their wrong behavior. Jesus says, hey, you, you see a bro, and he's got a little sawdust. Oh, maybe he's a carpenter, you know, like Jesus. He's got a little sawdust on his eye. Meanwhile, you got an oak tree growing out of your eye. A timber, the plank, the word plank is a 40-foot-long beam that they would use to build a house. People would have laughed at that, like, dude, you've got a freaking redwood tree growing out of your face. Like, that's not good. Your wrong heart won't help their wrong behavior. The entire Sermon on the Mount is connected. Okay, it's one sermon. 
But the entire Sermon on the Mount has focused on essentially one thing. That a wrong heart is just as serious as wrong behavior. Isn't that the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount? That a wrong heart is just as serious as wrong behavior. He says, hey, hey, you're all stoked you never killed nobody, but you're a hateful, prideful, critical person just as bad. Oh, you're all proud that you've never shacked up and slept with anybody, but you're full of lust and you lust after people and, and you'd like to if it wouldn't make you look bad. You're just as bad. He says, he, he, he talked about so much a couple weeks ago that, uh, that if you do good to impress people, you're not good. That if you praise God to impress people, you're just using God. That you're a gold digger, that's about the heart. The whole Sermon on the Mount has been about the heart, and it's all connected. So what's he saying? He's saying, when you correct someone's wrong behavior with a wrong heart, you make yourself more guilty than they are. When you correct someone's wrong behavior with a wrong heart, you make yourself more guilty than they are. He doesn't say, oh, never make moral evaluations. Never go help them with the sawdust in their eye. Never tell people that there's a better way to live. Never help people change. What does he say? He says, remove your pride, then help them with their speck. Pride is the plank in your eye superiority is the timber tree in all of our eyes. When we think we're better than other people, he says, change your heart, then help them change their behavior. He says, with the same measure you measure others, it's going to be measured back to you. The word for measure there is actually the the, the Greek word for ruler. Saying you're walking around going, you don't measure up, and you don't measure up. Ah, 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 must be this tall to ride. You're not getting in. You know, oh, you don't measure up, you don't measure up. Want to know what Jesus says? He says, oh, that's interesting. Because I don't think you measure up either. Check out this verse. Every Christian should know this verse. It would make us so attractive. It would, make the, it would change this city. People would love to come to our churches if we lived this out. Romans chapter 3. For there is no difference. Can everybody say that with me? For there is no difference. A lot of people memorize verse 23, but the last part of 22 really connects with it. For there is no difference. Religion emphasizes what makes us different. The gospel emphasizes what makes us all the same. Pride divides. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You don't measure up, you don't measure up. Uh Uh-oh, I don't measure up. We fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up. None None of us measure up. And if we had that mentality, it would change the way that you act. You see, when you use God... To make yourself look big, you are the biggest glory robber, the greatest gold digger, and you transform yourself into a spiritual midget. (laughs) When you use God to make yourself look big, you're a glory robber. You're a gold digger. I preached a really good message about that. I'm going to be honest. It was really good. You should listen to that one. But like, you're a gold digger. You're, you're using God to make to elevate yourself and put other people down, but Jesus says, actually, it's the other way around. Your pride turns you into a spiritual pygmy. 
Your pride turns you into a spiritual pygmy. When, when, when you correct people's wrong behavior, when I correct people's wrong behavior with a wrong heart, we're the ones who have the redwood tree, and they're the ones who have the speck. You know why people are attracted to spirituality? People all over the, the city, all over Portland, I talk to people all the time. People say, I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in organized religion. I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in organized religion. Want to know why people say that? I know exactly why it is. Because dogma, dogma, that's doctrine, that's like a creed, you know, all the things we believe and we, we teach in the what we believe section of the crash course. Dogma, people say, can be used to elevate yourself and feel superior to other people and then it can be used as a weapon for hate. Dogma can be used as a pedestal to feel superior to other people and then used as a weapon for hate. But you want to know the genius of the gospel? The genius of the gospel is that I'm not saved by the accuracy of my doctrine. I'm saved completely by God's grace. And anyone who actually understands that will never feel superior to anyone. I'll say that again. I'm not saved by the accuracy of my doctrine. I'm saved completely by God's grace. And anyone who actually understands that doctrine will never be superior to anyone. Let me put it to you like this. If you're saved by how much you know, there's always someone who doesn't know enough for you to look down on. If you're saved by how much you know, there's always someone else who doesn't know quite enough who hasn't done quite enough for you to look down on. But we're not saved by how much we know. We're saved by who we know. And if you know him, you know he wants to save everyone. You know that he wants to save everybody. If you're saved by how, we're not saved by how much we know. We're saved by who we know. The gospel is not, you're wrong and I'm right. Anybody been around a Christian who's like that? Anybody been around a religious person who's like that? Anybody just been around a human who's like that? Secular, saved, either way. You're wrong, and I'm right. That's not the gospel. Want to know what the gospel is? We're all wrong. But Jesus can make us right. Oh my gosh, isn't that attractive? Isn't that refreshing? We're all wrong. But Jesus can make us right. Cancer survivors don't mock and belittle cancer patients. Cancer survivors don't mock and belittle other patients. And saved sinners will never look down on sinners. Saved sinners will never look down on other sinners. Isn't that good? Isn't that refreshing? Can we, can we, can we have, have some, uh, you know, celebrate that truth? The reason why I think it's worth celebrating it is because it's, it's so toxic for your heart to have this apathetic, disengaged attitude. It's, it's good for your heart to, to celebrate these truths. But, uh, but, you know, religious people always see their own sins as a speck and everybody else's sins as a plank. Religious people always see their own sins as a speck and everybody else's sins as a plank. But Jesus tells us kingdom people, kingdom people see their own sins as a plank and everybody else's sins is a speck. Want to know why? Because I know what's going on in my heart. 
I look at my own heart, I go, I got all kinds of jacked up motives. I got all kinds of lust. I got all kinds of craziness going on. I don't know your heart. You seem actually pretty cool to me. My heart's jacked, and I know I got all kinds of problems. I got a friggin' redwood tree growing out of my chest. But, dude, I, you got a plank, like, like, and I know I need Jesus. Can I help you with that? Can I help you with that little, little twig? Can I help you with that little sawdust speck? Kingdom people always see their own sins as planks and see other people's sins as specks. You know, the other thing is that kingdom people are attracted to sinners, and they're attractive to sinners. Where do you, where do you, find, where, where do you find the kingdom people? Where, where do they hang out? They, they, they love being around. They love being around prostitutes. They love being around tax collectors. They love being around, you know, the down and outs, the broken people, unbelievers, people who don't believe the same thing as them. They love being around those people. And you know what? They're also attractive to those people. I, I can tell you hundreds, thousands of times, I would stand out on a university campus in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I would explain that concept. I'd say, dude, the gospel isn't that I'm better than you. The gospel is that I'm more broken than you. I'm just as broken than you, but I believe Jesus can fix all of us. Do you know how many people, atheists, uh, homosexual people, Hindus, Muslims, you know, New Age people, they'd be like, whoa, I've never heard it put like that. Whoa, that's amazing. They're attracted to it. But you know what? Religious people, they don't want to hang out with non-believers. They don't want to hang out with drug addicts. They feel, they feel oh, that person's gay? Oh, that person's trans? Oh. And you can really see how deep the gospel has gotten down into if you freak out about people's sins. But kingdom people understand that their own sins are just as bad, that, they, that under a, different, a speck of sawdust is made out of the same chemical composition as a plank. And if you realize you're flesh and blood, and under the right set of circumstances, you have the exact same capacity as that person. And, and, and you're going to love to be around them. But religious people go, I don't want to be around those people. How could they do that? Oh, freaked out. But kingdom people are attracted to worldly people and attractive to worldly people. All right. We're going to continue on. Um, we're called to be coaches, not critics. We're called to be coaches, not critics. Um, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you got a plank in your eye, just leave it there, or just take it out, and then forget about the other guy. What does he say? He says, remove your pride. The plank in your eye is pride. Remove your pride, and then in a humble, gentle, gracious way, help your brother do better. He says, then you can remove it from your bro's eye, right? He doesn't say, leave it there. The difference between a coach and a critic is this, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, don't just leave them there. He says this, go and point out their fault. Between just the two of you, and that's, can we get this up here? Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. See, the difference between a coach and a critic is this. A coach wants you to win. A critic just tells you where you lost. A coach wants you to win. A critic tells you where you lost. Do you actually want other people to win? When, when, when you confront somebody, when you're dealing with that person, do you believe in them? Like, do you, do you want better for them? Do you want them to win? Do you want to win them over? Confrontation is never meant to be about humiliation. Confrontation is meant to be about restoration. 
that they, you're building people up, that you believe better for them. It, when you talk with somebody, do they leave feeling like a loser? Or do they believe feeling like, like they leave believing that you want something better for them? That's, that's the attitude. Um, you know, the, the other thing about a coach that's so different than a critic is this. A coach will correct you on what you did wrong. Like a coach will be like, hey, like, no, you, you got a fault. You stepped over the line. If we're in the Olympics, we'll lose the Olympics. But I want you to win the Olympics. I want you to succeed. That's why I'm telling you, you committed a fault. But here's the other thing about coaches. A coach takes the L's with you. A coach feels the L's with you. And that's why if you're really a kingdom person and somebody comes to you, yeah, I got drunk. I got wasted last night. Like I blew it. Your attitude is going to be like, oh, man. I feel that, bro. I feel that. But you can do better. I believe in you. Let's get back up. Let's get back up. Let's get back up. That you have this mentality that believes in people, that wants people to succeed. That's what love is. Isn't our culture obsessed with love? Anybody know that our culture is absolutely obsessed with love? You know that actually prior to Christianity coming onto the world stage, love was not an ideal people believed in to people who are different than them? Christianity brought that onto the world stage. I'm not just making that up as a pastor. German atheist Jürgen Habermas points that out. Lots of people, Nietzsche pointed that out. Lots of people pointed that out. I want to know where the words about love come from? They come from right here. Leviticus chapter 19, 17 to 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you really love someone, you want them to do better. If you really love someone, you want them to thrive. You want them to succeed. You don't just, if, you're, if you never tell anybody what they're doing wrong, you don't love that person. You love yourself. And you love yourself so much you want that person to like you. If you never tell somebody what they're doing wrong, you don't love that person. You love yourself. And you love yourself so much that you're afraid of that person not liking you. But if you really love someone, you want them to do better. You coach them. You want them to win. You want them to succeed. And it's all about the tone. It's all about the tone that we take. I was reading an article by an FBI hostage negotiator, all right, talking about hostile people. This guy, all day long, his job is to call, talk to people who have, like, who have, who have ransoms and, and terrorists and people who, who've, you know, robbed banks and come in and taken people prisoner. And his whole entire job is to take people like that and convince them that what they're doing is wrong and convince them to lay down their weapons and let the prisoners go. That's his job all day long. And why know what he said helps him a lot? It's something that he learned in neuroscience that the Bible has been teaching for years and years and years and years. Read the book of Proverbs. Read 1 Peter. Read the book of Acts. Read things Jesus says. Read the, read the epistles of Paul to pastors, to how pastors are supposed to act. What did the neuroscientists say? They said, when you come up to somebody and you tell somebody they're doing wrong, and you tell them that their beliefs are wrong, and you tell them something in a harsh way, neuroscientists say the cognitive faculties of their brain, their prefrontal cortex, shuts down. When you come up to somebody in a harsh tone and say, what you believe is wrong, you're wrong, neuroscience tells us that their cognitive faculties go dormant. The parts of their brain that are responsible for logic and reasoning 
go dormant and the parts of their brain for aggression and fight or flight kick in. And that's why the Bible says this, a soft answer turns away wrath. It's why the Bible says that we should always be ready to give an answer for anybody asks the reason for the hope that is in us with gentleness and respect. It's why Paul writes, I mean, God knows our brains. He made them. That's why Paul writes and he says, a pastor must be gentle, not quarrelsome, not proud, that in gentleness he might be able to draw people to repentance. Isn't that dope that the Bible knows that one of repentance means? Change of mind. Change your mind. That's the Greek word, change your mind. If this isn't really like tracking with you, um, see also every reality TV show ever made. (laughs) Right? See also every reality TV show, period. Here's the question. Do you want to sound smart or do you want to show them God's heart? Do you want to sound smart or do you want to show them God's heart? Do you want to school them? Or do you want to heal them? Do you want to school them? Or do you want to heal them? Because if you want to heal them, you're going to come across in a gentle way. And this also kind of asks the question, are you critical or are you coachable? Are you critical or are you coachable? Because you can get to a place where you've shut down the prefrontal cortex so many times, and you, and you shut down that, that part of your brain so many times, you shut down that part of your brain, that you're practically a werewolf. You're practically a werewolf. Jesus says, don't give to the dogs that which is holy. That there are some people, they're so hostile, they're so aggressive. I've encountered it. You're talking to this person, and they're like sinking their fangs into you. I know what I do in those situations. I just go, hey, bro, like, I don't feel like this conversation's benefiting either one of us. And then you run for the hills. You, know? <laughs> you run as fast as you get away. But, but, but Jesus gets that, that there's a place. I want to ask you this question. Are you critical or are you coachable? Because if you really believe that you're saved by grace, completely by grace, you won't be so defensive. See, the gospel takes away our fear of rejection, so then we can receive instruction. I'm not afraid of rejection. I know I've been accepted. I know I'm loved. I know I've been accepted by God. And so I don't have to try to defend my deeds. And hey, I I, no, no, I, I really was doing it right. You're the one who's wrong. The gospel makes you receptive to instruction. You know, I get people at the church from time to time who come up to me and are like, I hate Reason Church. You're doing it all wrong. Your leadership's horrible. Your leadership's this. You know what I tell them a lot of the time? Like, I, I, like Lord willing, this is what response comes out of my most most. So I just go, man, I got room to grow. I got room to grow. I don't got it all figured out. I'm not a perfect leader. I don't have everything. Let's grow together. Let's keep growing together as a church. All right. Next thought is, is, is from uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you first read this... Um, when you first read this, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, and it goes on and it says, if you don't forgive your debtors, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. As you read this, at first you can almost feel like, oh man, like, like I earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people. That's how it sounds. But you know what you need to do? We need to go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, this is all one sermon. This is all connected. So what does Jesus have in his head when he's saying this? How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? 
What do you do to enter the kingdom of heaven? How do you get him, you know, night at the Roxbury, right? How do you not get bounced out of the club? How do you get him to part the velvet ropes for you to come into the kingdom? Let's go back to the beginning. First words out of Jesus' mouth. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Want to know why forgiveness is so connected into all of this? Because wanting payback proves you aren't poor in spirit. Wanting payback proves you aren't poor in spirit. Let's put Matthew 5, 3 on the screen. Blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. If you don't realize that you are a spiritual peasant, if you don't realize that you're spiritual, spiritually bankrupt, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. The only way to come into the kingdom of heaven is to realize I am so deep in the red, there is absolutely nothing I could do on this planet to catch up with these payments. The only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to go, I can't afford to get in. And the attitude that that comes to, it, when you're, I'll put it like this, when you are defaulting on your mortgage, you don't keep tabs on everybody else's FICO score. <laughs> when you're defaulting on your loans, you don't sit around going, oh, and that person's not paying, and that person's not paying. And they don't. It's like, I could, I'm, I'm barely keeping my eyeballs above water, bro. Like, I, oh my gosh. Like, when you are poor in spirit, You don't look around at everybody else's spiritual bankruptcy. If you're living in the land of revenge, it shows that your loyalty must still lie outside the kingdom of grace. If you're living in the land of revenge, your loyalty must lie outside of the kingdom of grace. Forgiving people can be hard, right? Anybody? Anybody agree? Forgiving people can be hard. And there can be a tendency, hey, uh, the, the point we're on right now is wanting payback proves you aren't poor in spirit. Wanting payback proves you aren't poor in spirit. Payback and the tendency to hold on to a grudge and not forgive and be bitter, what is that tendency? That tendency is a desire for the other person to get what they deserve. You're going, I hope that person to get what they deserve. I hope they get what they deserve. Oh, she was mean to me. My boss was hard on me. My mom was mean to me. This person was rude to me. This person cut me off. I hope they get what they deserve. I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not going to let that go. I'm not going to pay that debt. I'm not going to release that debt. I hope they have to pay. I hope I get payback. I hope I get payback. Jesus is saying, if you're always wanting people to get what they deserve, you must not really realize what you deserve. If you always want other people to get what they deserve, it must not really register what you deserve. See, all of us have committed spiritual plagiarism. Pride is spiritual plagiarism. Pride, God created us, but all the time we're committing plagiarism saying, I'm not going to give God the credit. I'm not going to give God control. I'm not going to give God the royalties. I'm not going to give God the rights. I'm going to commit plagiarism. Why don't you deserve when you commit plagiarism? You deserve a freaking lawsuit. <laughs> you deserve a serious lawsuit when you commit plagiarism. And all of us are spiritual debtors. And all of us are in the red. And we're so deep in the red that the only thing that can bring us out of the negative, bring us out of the red, is the blood of Jesus. That's the only thing that can put us in the black. But bitterness 
says the blood of Jesus ain't enough. Bitterness says that the blood of Jesus ain't enough. Forgiven people should forgive people. Loved people should love people. Accepted people will accept people. You know, I quote him every week because he's so brilliant. He's a dude who taught at Oxford. If you've come here for a while, I quote him all the time because he was, he was an atheist till he was 40, so he would fit right in in Portland. Um, he was an atheist till he was 40, but then after thinking through Christianity and through the power of his arguments, he became a, a Christian. And I think, you know, obviously God's grace, but I think, I think his arguments still stand up today. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It's perhaps not so hard to forgive one great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. By meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. We live in a culture that is 100% on the relativistic side. Okay? And people think it's very negative to walk around all the time going, I'm a sinner. Oh, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. Want to know what our culture would tell us? No, no. You have low self-esteem. Don't say that about yourself. You're good. You're awesome. You're good. You want to be beautiful. And, and, and uh, you know, people, people would say, Jesse, you're so negative. Don't tell people they're sinners. That's very negative. That's very bad for their self-image. But want to know what I found? Remembering, the own, remembering that I'm a sinner is the only way I can stop myself from obsessing over everyone else's sins. Remembering I'm a sinner is the only way I can stop myself from obsessing over everyone else's sin. Oh, yeah, you've got high self-esteem. I've got high self-esteem. I'm awesome. I'm the cool kid. I'm the coolest. And she sucks, and he sucks, and he's the worst, and I hate that lady, and that guy's the worst, and they're awful, and you offended me. I'm never going to forgive you, and you're awful, and, and get out of my life. But remembering how much of a debtor you are makes it really easy to let things go. Remembering that you're a sinner is the only way to stop being obsessed over the sins of other people. I was reading the International Journal of Psychology recently, and uh, they had a big article, the big spread across, across the top of it that said, what is the simplest way to drastically improve your health? I was like, hmm, I like simple. Simple is good, right? What is the simplest way to drastically improve your physical health? Okay, they have physical health in mind. Want to know what the answer was? Forgive. This is not Christian saying this. This is the International Journal of Psychology saying that forgiveness was significantly associated with fewer medications, less alcohol use, 
lower blood pressure, a healthier cardiovascular system, that it, that it significantly was associated with a lower heart rate, with fewer symptoms overall, and that this had significant implications regarding the forgiveness health link, suggesting that the benefits go far beyond the moment you dissipate the anger. Whoa! For your health, y'all! <laughs> For your health! Like, forgiveness makes you healthy. But how do we do it? I wonder how that article ended. The Psychology uh, uh, Inter- International Journal of Psychology. I wonder how the article ended. But forgiveness is hard. That was literally how it ended. But forgiveness is hard. How do we do it? How do you forgive those people who've hurt you so bad? How do you forget? Okay, it'll, it'll, it'll improve your health radically. How do you do it? Well, this is, this is the key. You can let go when you know that no sin goes unpaid for. You can let go when you know that no sin goes unpaid for. Some of you know this story. I was sharing it with somebody after church last week, and it just ties in so well. The story of Joseph. It's super famous. But I think it's really, 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 really important, really important, not to picture a cartoon in your mind when I tell you this story. This is not a cartoon. This is reality. Okay, a lot of people are obsessed with their dreams. And part of the reason why they get so hurt in life is because somebody came and ruined their dream. Somebody came and messed up their dream family. Somebody came and messed up their dream relationship. Oh, you were supposed to be Mr. Wonderful. You messed it up. You were supposed to fulfill my dream. You crushed it. You were supposed to be my, my this was supposed to be my dream job. You ruined my dream. Well, Joseph had a dream. Joseph was a real person like you and I. And he had dreams of greatness. And he had dreams that he was supposed to be the, 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 the king and that he was supposed to be a success and that he was supposed to go far in life. But his brothers hated him. And this is not a cartoon. Picture reality, okay? His brothers came and they chucked him down a dry well and left him to starve. How are your dreams now, Joseph? And a few days later, they pulled him up out of it and they sold him into slavery. And this is not cartoon slavery. This is human exploitation. This is, this is, imagine Civil War beatings. Imagine, imagine you know, America. This is, this is dehumanization. All of his rights being stripped away. And for 20 years, his dreams were crushed. And he was property. But then after that 20 years, after those 20 years of pain, what happens? Well, Joseph kept trusting Jesus. He kept trusting grace, and and that pain actually changed him. Where he used to be this proud, self-righteous, better than everybody else, the pain changed him. And he became humble, and, and eventually God gave him his dream. And he became the second most powerful person on the planet. And he became second only to Pharaoh. And his brothers were starving in Canaan. And so they come, and they come, and they beg for grain. And, and Joseph, he weeps on them, and, and, and he shows them, you know, he learns to, to see whether they're trustworthy because forgiveness and trust aren't the same thing. Forgiveness is free. Trust is earned. But anyways, in, in those moments, they come to him, and their father dies. And in Genesis fifty fifteen, they say this, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us? and pays 
us back. See, it's always about payment. It's always about payment. It's always about debts. It's always about payment. It's always about payback for all the wrongs we did to him. And they tried to pay, and they threw themselves before him, and they said, we made you a slave, now we're your slaves. But what did the work of grace, what did all the pain and the humbling do to Joseph's heart? He says this, verse 19, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? To not forgive is to put yourself in the place of God. To hold a grudge is to hold a kangaroo court. You're putting yourself in the place of God. But want to know what forgiveness means? It means to release. It means to let go. You could say it like this. Forgiveness is to let God be God. To let God be God. To say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You say, God, I'm going to let you be God. I'm I'm, going to let go. I'm going to release. I'm going to let go. I'm going to let you be God. Genesis 50, 20. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph got it. Joseph got it. Knowing your pain has a purpose gives you the power to pardon. Knowing your pain has a purpose gives you the power to pardon. Joseph didn't know how it was going to happen, but he believed. He believed his pain had a purpose, and ultimately God did have a purpose. He saved all of Egypt through Joseph's pain. He saved the lineage of the Jews, which would lead to Jesus, who was another king, who would suffer so that not just a nation could be saved, so the whole world could be saved. Joseph's pain had a purpose, and believing that his pain had a purpose gave him the power to pardon. And I know the power of this verse— And I share this story somewhat frequently simply because I know that one out of three girls in this country have this story. I know that one out of five boys have this story. Okay, one out of five. But some of you know my story that when I was like two and a half, three years old, I was raped. I was raped by a man who played the drums at my church. I was raped by a man who pretended to be my dad's friend. I was raped. And I wanted payback. And I grew up and I told my best friend Clay, I told him my only goal in life is to murder that man. I want payback. But then the gospel flooded into my heart. And then I met Jesus. And then grace washed over me and I saw, dang, The murder in my heart makes me just as black and dark and wicked as him. That my debt is just as serious as his debt. And relativism will tell you this. Relativism will tell the victim of abuse. Relativism will tell you, it's all right. It's okay. It's all right. It's just no big deal. It's just nothing. Just forget about it. It's nothing. It's no big deal. It's okay. 
You know what the cross tells us? The cross tells us it's not okay. It's not okay that you were abused. It's not okay that your dad walked out on you. It's not okay that your spouse was a jerk. It's not okay that that person wronged you. It's not okay that that person hated you. It's not okay that that person victimized you. It's not okay. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. And the Sermon on the Mount continues into the rest of the book of Matthew where it says this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, Matthew chapter 20, 28, and to give his life as a payment, as a ransom for many. Want to know where you find the power to forgive? You find the power to forgive in the fact that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't just sufficient for your sins. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for their sins. And I forgave that man, not because it's okay. Relativism, our culture tells you it's okay that he raped me. It's not okay. But I forgive him because Jesus paid a price and no sin goes unpaid for. And Jesus told us that our, the justice is serious, but that his love is even more serious. That's the gospel. And if you're here today and you liked the first half of my sermon, but you didn't like the second half so much, I got to show you something. Luke tells us, judge not be, lest you be judged. Condemn not, lest you be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. And somebody you left church because you got burned by a judgy church. But the same Jesus who said, judge not, lest you be judged, said, forgive, and you'll be forgiven. And you've been hurt by your boss, and you've been hurt by your mom, and you've been hurt by your dad, and you've been hurt by that church, and you've been hurt by this person. And you've been heaping up that unforgiveness, brick by brick, saying, they hurt me, they'll never hurt me again. They hurt me, and I'll never let them hurt me again. And I'm building this fortress, brick by brick, bitterness by bitterness, grudge by grudge. You're building your fortress saying, I'm going to be safe. Nobody's going to hurt me. I'm going to build this fortress. But I came here to tell you, you're not building a fortress. You're building a tomb. Holding a grudge will hold you back from what God has for you. And that abuser took part of your past, but that pain had a purpose. That victim, that, that person took part of your past, but you don't got to let him take your present. You don't got to let him take your future. The longer you wait to forgive, the more time you give to your abuser. And you need to to come to a place where you see the infinite debt that you're underneath because there's no difference. And then see the infinite love of God because Jesus didn't die just to forgive you of the sins you commit. Jesus died to heal you of the sins committed against you. 
And that's grace. Father, I pray right now that people would forgive Jesus. That they'd see the debt that all of us are under. That they'd see that we're all under a crushing weight of debt because of our wrong hearts. Because of our wrong motives. Because of our wrong behaviors. And they'd see that you love debtors. You loved them while they were dead in their sins and trespasses. And I pray that Christians today would have the power to forgive, the power not to judge. They'd see the beauty of the cross and it'd make us attractive and attracted to sinners. If that's you, if you need to forgive, if you've been building those bricks up, building those bricks up, man, I'm here to tell you the blood of Jesus, it breaks every bond, it breaks every chain. You need to let his grace flow through you today. If that's you and you need to forgive somebody, and you've been holding it in, holding it in, trying to protect yourself, trying to save yourself, you want to forgive today, would you just raise your hand up? You just be honest, just saying there's somebody I need to forgive. I'm letting that pain control me. I'm letting that, that define me. Man, it is so much better, so much freer to let God's grace control you. You need to forgive. Just raise your hand up. Amazing. Amazing. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, we're poor in spirit. We see our own bankruptcy. We see our own debt. We see how far in the red we are. God, I pray that we wouldn't be keeping tabs on everybody else's FICO scores. Help us to forgive. Help us to live as coaches, not as critics. You can put your hands down. Maybe you're here today and you don't just need to forgive somebody. You need to be forgiven. You've never even believed the gospel. Like you've never even accepted it. You've never really owned up to the fact you got debt. That you have had a wrong heart. That you have hurt people. You've both been hurt by people and you've hurt people. But you've never admitted it. A doctor can't help you if you won't admit that you're sick. And a savior can't save you if you won't admit that you're a sinner. But today can be the day where you admit that you need healing. The day that you admit that you need help. The day that you admit that you need a Savior. He wants to save you. He loves you in your exact condition. But he don't want to leave you there. Would you just raise your hand up if that's you? If you want to surrender to Jesus. If you want to just say, God, I I need your help. I can't do this on my own. Would you just raise your hand up? It's amazing. I see a hand in the back. I think it's freeing. I like doing the hand raise thing because it's freeing. It's liberating. It's scary. But it'll set you free, man. Just trusting in Jesus, calling on the name of the Lord. Would you just slip your hand up? I want to give you a gift. It's amazing. I see a couple people. Anybody else? We're just going to give you a gift. But the Bible says anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anybody who just goes, God, have mercy on me. I'm broke. He's so good. He'll just pay it on the spot. Boom. Would you pray this out loud? We'll pray it all together. Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I got debt. But I believe Jesus paid it. I believe he's risen from the dead. I pray that he'd be in charge. That you'd be my savior. That you'd be my Lord. Amen. Can we celebrate together? Amazing. Hey.
Let Reason Church be a place that's unshockable. We can't be surprised by anybody's sin. We, we're just as capable of it. In the right circumstance, under the right condition, apart from God's grace, we do the exact same thing. Let's let Reason Church be a space of grace.